Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Brad. Benji. Hi. <coughs> we are continuing our uh, Seeking the Heart of God series. Last week we heard about David's reaction to the death of Saul and Jonathan. Um, Benji taught us about how David's heart was moldable uh, and how that's, that's a key characteristic to a person who wants to be a man or woman of God and who wants to seek the heart of God. Now this week we'll be looking at the first few years of David's kingship. Um, we'll be focusing mainly in 2 Samuel 5 through 12, a little bit in 4. Now in this section David has victory after victory, and then he has one massive failure. Um, he's like a runner who's going strong in the race and then trips and falls. We'll be focusing on the question, what makes David as king a man after God's own heart? And what can we learn from David's mistakes about getting up when we fall and continuing the race? Let's pray. Lord, Father in heaven, we just thank you for today and thank you for your glory. Um, Lord, I thank you that you've got all these great historical examples for us to follow. I pray that uh, David's life would move us and that we would learn from his mistakes and not repeat them. Um, I pray that your, uh, your words and your will would be here to this morning and that uh, you would uh, help me not get in the way of, uh, of your will. Pray this in your name. Amen. So David becomes king, uh, first of Judah and then of all of Israel, and we'll look at that in a second. And in this he shows honor. After Saul's death, he's made king of only Judah, and that's the southern part of the kingdom. A man named uh, Ishbosheth who was actually the only surviving son of Saul, he becomes the king in the north. And at this time, they're essentially they're at war at this time. Now there's some key events that happen uh, that show David to be this fair and honorable man that I want us to focus on this morning. First, Abner. And if you remember, Abner is the general of Saul's army. But when Ishbosheth takes over, he treats Abner poorly. So Abner actually tries to defect over to David. And David welcomes him. He knows this man. They fought together. And then Abner even brings Michal, that's David's first wife, uh, at David's request. But Joab, and that's David's general, um, actually kills Abner at the gates of Jerusalem for some earlier death. This is a revenge killing is actually what it is. And David is just disgusted in Joab's actions. And he actually rebukes him publicly, even though technically speaking at this time, his actions would have been considered lawful, but David is disgusted by it. Uh, the second event is that after Abner's death, Ishbosheth loses all hope of defeating David or of even standing against him. And the text even says that all of Israel loses hope. So these two men, seeing in the situation this chance for riches or glory, sneak into Ishbosheth's home while he's sleeping, and they kill him and cut off his head, and they bring it to David. Now, if you remember last week how David reacted to the man who came and told him that he had killed Saul, uh, it, didn't, it didn't work out too well for that guy. Um, and we're actually going to read 2 Samuel 4, 8 through 12. Uh, and this is David's reaction to these two men. That's 2 Samuel 4, 8 through 12. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged 
The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimon and Berothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David is furious at these two men who just brought him the head of his enemy, a man who wished to kill him. Uh, but both of these accounts, with Abner and Ishbosheth, uh, they set the stage for what's going to come, for, what's, uh, for when David actually becomes king over all the land. And both show David to be this very honorable man. This is the heart of David. <clears throat> that even those who wish his death, even those who are his enemy, be treated with honor and respect, especially those who are in some high position of authority, like Abner or Ishbosheth. This is a great application for us. As David showed respect and honor even to his enemies, we need to show respect to everyone we come in contact with. This becomes very hard in the secular workplace. When we're out in the world, there are a lot of people who don't act like they deserve any kind of respect or honor. People who drive us crazy. But the point is that we're here to show the character of God. We need to remember, how would Jesus treat these people? Not how do I think they deserve to be treated. And in that, we can be good ambassadors for God. Now we find Israel coming to David in 2 Samuel 5 and basically begging him to become their king. It reads, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel, remember that's the northern kingdom, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So for years, since David was a child, he knew that he was the anointed king of Israel, all of the nation, through God. God had anointed him. And he's age 30 right now, and he finally becomes king. And next we see David in his newfound leadership role uh, showing great wisdom by consolidating his power. First, he conquers Jerusalem. Now, this is important because, as we said, the north and the south don't seem to ever get along. Even in David's time, they consider themselves two nations instead of one. And later in their history, there'll be civil war between the two nations constantly. So David, I believe out of wisdom, chooses a city that is not owned by either the north or the south. That's Jerusalem. It's smack dab in the middle of the Israelites' land, but it's actually uh, occupied and owned by the Jebusites. And the problem is that, well, it, it is currently occupied. So David decides he's going to take it. Um, this is a great story. You should take a moment and read it later. But the Jebusites basically laugh in his face um, when he sieges the city. 
Um, and this is, a, this is the, the famous story of when David's men go up through the cistern and take the city by night. Uh, and the Jebusites, the text says, were hated by David's soul, by the way. This is a brilliant move for David. He's ensuring that neither the north or the south feels slighted or feels haughty over which city he decides to take as his capital. And also, he's making a very clear statement right away, even a well-defended city I will take if I want to. Next, in consolidating his power, he brings his first wife, the daughter of Saul, back to him. Um, now, Michal had actually been given to another man by Saul. After Saul drove David away, he probably annulled their marriage. So he married him to another man. Now, David is demanding her return, um, even though they'd been separated for years, and it actually appears that she was happily married. But it seems from the text that he's not demanding her return out of any kind of great love he has for her. And if you remember uh, in 1 Samuel, it says that she loved David, but it never actually says that David loved her, which is an interesting thing to note. Um, it's probably that he's consolidating his power. He wants his first wife, who happens to be the grand, or I'm sorry, the daughter of the previous king, he wants her in his home as his wife. Um, this ensures that many people would just accept him because there seems to be a direct line from the last king. Uh, furthermore, as king, there is an important statement to make here. Another man should not have his wife. Whether Saul believed it or not when he annulled their marriage, uh, before God, these two were married, and another man should not have the king's wife. He's making a statement. Finally, he brings the ark to Jerusalem, and this is just incredibly wise of him to do. Uh, he's already made Jerusalem the political capital, uh, and by bringing the ark to Jerusalem, he makes it the religious capital as well. Again, he's consolidating all his power, power in one location. He understands that the people of God are aligned to God first. And if the religious capital and the political capital are in two different places, that's going to make things difficult for David in controlling the land. Furthermore, the ark blesses the inhabitants of whatever place it stays in. So by bringing it to his capital, he's actually um, ensuring the fruitfulness and the plenty of that city. And again, making himself more powerful, making his reign more in control. After this, we find David fulfilling his role as a servant. He's already been fulfilling his role. Skipped a little bit. He's already been fulfilling his role as a wise leader, and now he's going to fulfill his role as a servant to God. He desires to build a house for God. He, he shows that he is a devoted and a pious man. Now, this is one of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a chapter in which God sets up the covenant of the Davidic, the Davidic kingdom. It declares the Messiah will be of the line of David. Now David has done all these great things so far. He's built himself this great fortress and a wonderful house. He consolidated all his power. And then he looks at the tent that the Ark of the Covenant resides in. And David decides he wants to build a house of God. 2 Samuel 7, 1-3 Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest, from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Even to the prophet, this seems like a great idea. What David wants is a good thing. He is pious, he is devoted to God. 
He just wishes to glorify God. He saw all that God had given him, all the great blessings and all the peace, and he said, why should I have such a wonderful house? And the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord's presence, reside in a tent. But God actually had other plans here. Uh, God says instead, he will build a house for David. Uh, These verses are incredibly important, so we're actually going to read them. It's 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. But this is key verses to understanding um, the covenant of David and the relationship of God and David and the coming of the Messiah. So 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, and I'm reading in the ESV. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is Nathan, um, this is God speaking to Nathan, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I, as I took it from Saul when I put away, when, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And there's an interesting wordplay here in these verses. David says that he will build a physical, literal house for God, a temple for God. Now, the Hebrew word for God um, is very similar to our word, actually. It's very simple, but it also has the double meaning of a a line, a dynasty, like the house of Tudor. God is promising David that there will always be a man from David's line to sit on the throne of David. He's promising to make him a, a dynasty for all eternity. Now, we do have to ask, does God follow through with this covenant? During the times of the exile... Uh, the Roman control of Israel, and even right now, is there a son of David sitting on the throne? Now we can see from the lineage of of Jesus in the Gospels, from David to Jesus, that there was always a man available from David's line to sit on the throne. However, that man did not necessarily possess the right to sit on the throne. So he was available, but he may not have literally been sitting on the throne. Now, this is because God was actively punishing his people during this time. They were not following through with their end of the Mosaic Covenant, that they walk in God's statutes and observe his commandments. And now we understand and see that Jesus is the final and eternal answer to this covenant. Right now and forevermore, Jesus will sit on the throne as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. Which brings us to the most important point, that this is first and foremost a messianic prophecy. Obviously, there is some reference to earthly men other than Jesus here. Um, God talks of David's offspring building him a temple, and Solomon does build a physical temple 
for God. But even that has a double meaning because Jesus has built the house of God in the church. The temple of God, as we know from the New Testament, is the people of the church. God also states that he will be like a father to David's offspring. Um, And obviously this is referring to figuratively to David's descendants, but also literally to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Ultimately, this covenant of God is that David's line will lead to the coming Messiah, who will be the Son of God, who will rule God's kingdom for all eternity, um, and as we know now, who will die on the cross, or who did die on the cross for our sins. Now this also leads directly to some of the misunderstandings of the Messianic prophecy in the New Testament. Uh, It causes some expectation in many of God's people, and a lot of times, again, it's false expectation. They were waiting for a warrior king like David to come and raise up an army to destroy the Romans. God's plan was slightly different than they were expecting. Uh, This king would not come looking for an army. He was coming for faith and acceptance in God's plan. Now we also need to ask a simple question, why isn't God allowing David to build this temple? Firstly, God says, I didn't ask you to build me a temple. Uh, He has the the tabernacle system set up so that he can live among the people. He's a God of the people. Uh, Second, David is a man of violence. And we have to admit that sometimes in David's battles, he is ruthless. He slaughters whole populations when he's not directly commanded to do so. Uh, There's one example where he just lines everybody up and measures and says, everybody over here, just kill them. And this is after the battle. Um, And that's not something that God told him to do. David is a man whose hands were bloody. Now granted, much of that blood was caused by God telling him to go out and fight the enemies of Israel, which we'll talk about in the next section. But it seems that God is making a point. When it is necessary, God is a God of war and violence. But God is also a God of peace and prosperity. Um, and I, so that's why I think Solomon, who is a man whose life is basically characterized by peace, he is the man who is allowed to build God's temple. And then finally, David hears all of this and then he prays to God. And this is a wonderful prayer that uh, everybody should take a moment to read later. It's seven seventeen through 29. Um, but David just goes before God with this great humility and... It's a really interesting prayer about God's will because he's been told what God's will is and now he's praying that the Lord's will that he was just told would happen. But it seems in this prayer that David fully realizes the extent of this covenant. He understands that God is talking about a Messiah, that his lineage will lead to the Savior of God's people. And he's greatly humbled by this. And David also seems to understand that this is a charter for all of humanity, not just the Israelites. God is not only declaring a dynasty for his own nation, he is authorizing a dynasty for all humans for all time through David's line to Christ. 2 Samuel 7.19 And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. This is David speaking. O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. This is instruction. That's Torah for mankind. Jesus was not the king of the Jews, uh, as the Romans declared him to be. He is king of all mankind. Next we see David back at his business, that is, defeating the enemies of God. 
In uh, 2 Samuel 8, we see all these examples of David defeating, 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 defeating all the enemies of God. In this section, David again and again goes against greater armies, armies that are much larger than his own. He trusts in God, and God gives him victory. In fact, I've got a nice helpful map here. To give you an idea, this green here, this was Saul's kingdom. And in just a few years, this purple, this is David's kingdom. So the point is that God gave David all this victory. And all these, these greater forces were defeated through God's will. <clears throat> now under David, the people of Israel were starting to fulfill their end of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, you find this in Leviticus 26. They were following God's will under this wise and good leadership. And that's why God was giving them all of this victory. Uh, I'm going to read a section of Leviticus 26, 3 through 12. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield the fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before your sword. Um... That's what's happening here. They're defeating all these enemies who amass against them. The Lord gave the land peace and prosperity, but he also gave them a king after his own heart. Second Samuel 8.15, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. If you remember, the people chose Saul as their perfect king. When they, when they wanted a king, this was the guy who was going to do it, and he failed miserably. And then God chose a shepherd boy from a poor family and then took him and honed him like iron into a sharp sword that we see here that he uses for his will. And during this time, we find a whole bunch of Psalms of David that he was writing while he was decimating all of his enemies. And I'm just going to read a few excerpts. Psalm 101.8, Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Psalm 105, 7-15, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that He made with Abraham, His sworn promise to Isaac. And He goes on to say, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion when they, are, when they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it. Um, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. Rebuked kings on their account saying, Touch not my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. God is fulfilling all these promises through David, and it's a wonderful thing. And after all of his victories through God, um, David is reminded of a promise that he made long ago to his friend Jonathan. And in this he shows that he is also a man of his word, just like God is fulfilling his promises. Now David is fulfilling his. He remembers that back in 1 Samuel 19, which would have been probably... 
10 or 15 years ago at this point, he made this promise to Jonathan, who's now dead, that he would show kindness to his family. He would not cut off his line. And in 2 Samuel 9, he finds that last remaining son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. He's lame in his feet. He probably wasn't all that good looking. He was probably poor. This is a man that he had never even met before. He couldn't walk. He couldn't run. At this time period, it would have been far more likely for David to kill this man on sight because of who his grandfather was, Saul. But instead... David raises him up. The text says he treats him as one of his sons. Mephibosheth is given all of Saul's ancestral lands, all of his property, even his servants. And then from that point on, Mephibosheth uh, eats at David's table every single day. And again, he treats him like family. He's showing his undying honesty, his commitment to keeping his promises. And again, there's a great application for us because years later, even after the person he made this promise to was dead, he kept his covenant. He kept his word. His yes was his yes. Let's do the same. And then next we see his loyalty to an old friend. And again, one who dies. In chapter 10, we hear the king of the Ammonites has died. Uh, David sends envoys to comfort his son, who is the new king. Now this king, the one who just died, was a man who protected David's family when he was fleeing from Saul. So David, in turn, wants to show loyalty back to him. Now, unfortunately, this new king, the son, shows foolishness in his youth. He listens to bad counsel and he acts poorly. The counselors convince him that these envoys from David are not there to comfort him and bring him a message of friendship. They convince him that these are spies. So the Ammonites... Take these envoys of peace, cut off their beards, half their beards, and half their clothes, and send them packing. Now we should take a moment and note what David does. Because he hears of this, and he rides out and meets his servants, um, and and allows them to stay at Jericho, so that their beards and their prides could heal. He wants uh, to give these men some peace, and allow them to not have their family see them in this dishonored state. He's showing loyalty to his servants. He's showing kindness. And too late, the king of the Ammonites realizes his mistake, that David acts fiercely in protection of his people, even his servants. But this new king, instead of repenting of his act, he declares war on David preeminently. He hires armies from all across the land. He even gets the Syrians, who are vastly powerful at this time, to come and help. And they amass this great army, much larger than David's, and they attack him. But David's army, through God, defeats this overwhelming force and takes a whole bunch of land from them. They defeat Damascus and Syria, which at the time was one of the great world powers. In 2 Samuel 10.12, Joab, David's general, says this to the army, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. This is when they're surrounded on all sides. Joab in this prayer isn't assuming to know God's will, He's saying, take courage and just trust in the Lord's will. And now the army goes on to kill something like 40,000 of their enemies and the rest flee. And we find in Scripture that God often instructs His people to be courageous. Uh, We may not find ourselves in a literal, physical battle for the Lord, but every day we're fighting our sin. 
Uh, every day we are in this spiritual battlefield in this world, in our culture. Uh, too often we Christians just seem to give up. We grow complacent. We turn over. We give up the, the fight and the war and the race. Uh, I think we should take a page from Joab's book here. He says, Be of good courage. Fight the good fight. And trust in God's will. Whatever's happening. Now in the next episode of David's life, that's chapter 11 of Second Samuel, we find David doing the opposite of this. When he should be out fighting battles, he stays home in his idleness. And this leads to the greatest sin of his life. <clears throat> the text says that David sent his army out to war in the season that kings went out to battle. But David stayed at home. When he should have been out fighting, he was in Jerusalem being idle. When all of his men and all of his mighty men and all his warriors were gone, it was just him and probably some counselors and some old men and some youths. So he is idle when he should have been away. Kings at this time were first and foremost warrior kings. Uh, they were expected to lead their armies in battle. This should be a warning for all of us. Idleness often leads us to sin. And when we are where we should not be, we are often tempted. David is setting himself up here. In his idleness, David sees Bathsheba bathing. He does not look away. He does not flee from his lust. Instead, he gives in. Again, a warning. There's always that moment before we sin where we have a choice to make. And David makes the wrong choice. Um, saying yes to sin always seems like it's going to be easier. And many times saying yes to sin, it seems like that's going to be good and enjoyable and it's going to make me happy. Um, but as we're going to see from David's example, this always leads to destruction and bitterness. Something else we should notice here is that David plans his sin. This is premeditated. He notices Bathsheba. He lusts. And at that point, he should have repented of his sin and gone in his way. But instead, he plans to commit adultery with her. He sends his servants to bring her, and they sin together. He makes a plan for it. And very quickly, David is faced with the consequences of his plan. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Now again, David has another opportunity here to live up to his sin and deal with the consequences. Instead, he tries to cover it up. Now Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, which many of us know this story, he's a soldier in David's army. He's this great and honorable warrior. He's even listed as one of David's mighty men. And of all the thousands of David's warriors, there's only 37 men who are mentioned as one of the mighty men. So evidently, this is a loyal, staunch servant of David. So David calls him back home from the war under pretense. And then twice tries to convince him to go to his home, get cleaned up, get some food, and have relations with his wife. But Uriah won't do that. Uh, while so many others are out in battle, and this is probably an officer, so while his own soldiers are out in battle... He will not go home and enjoy the comforts. Uriah, unlike David, is refusing to be idle when there is work to be done. So in response, again, David has this great opportunity to fess up, but instead in response he commits another great sin. He sends this good, honorable servant of his to death. He writes a letter to Joab and he sends the letter by the hand of Uriah, to the field of battle and he instructs Joab to place Uriah in the worst fighting and then back off and let him get killed. Now remember, this is exactly what Saul tried to do to David in 1 Samuel. Um, and, and let's make no mistake here, this is murder. 
He may not have committed it with his own hand, but this is murder. David is putting an innocent, honorable, and loyal man to death for the sake of his lust. I think there's a, there's a lesson here about people with power. It doesn't matter what kind of power you have. Any person in any leadership role has this great responsibility to use it properly. David has incredible power here. And instead of using it for good, he uses it for this great injustice. And unlike Saul, he is successful. Uriah is killed, and then David takes this dead man's wife. But David doesn't get away with it. Uh, There are grave consequences. But first, David has to be humbled. Nathan, who is now the head prophet of God after Samuel's death, comes to David at the command of God to confront him on his sin. He tells David a story about a poor man with one lamb, this one lamb to his family's name, uh, and they raised it as a pet. This is a part of their family. This is a, an animal they love. And then one day a rich man had guests, and he did not wish to slaughter one of his, his many sheep, so he took the one lamb from this poor man, the lamb that the man loved, and he killed it and ate it. Now David hears this story and he's furious. He wants to know who this man is because he's going to make this guy pay. And Nathan says, David, this man is you. You are this man. David had taken the one wife of his servant Uriah when he had had many wives of his own. Then he murdered his servant. Now to David's credit, he is instantly humbled. He is confronted face to face, probably publicly. This is is his court. Publicly confronted with his sin and he repents of it. Now, I don't believe this is a situation in which he's merely repenting because he got caught. It seems that his heart is actually broken. Uh, He even wrote a psalm about this. This is a psalm of a man going before God broken and ashamed and then accepting forgiveness. And I want to read it. It's Psalm 51. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. 
<clears throat> Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. David's heart just breaks in this psalm. <clears throat> He's truly repentant. Uh, and he makes his heart right with God. And then and Nathan confirms that God will not remove David from his position as king. He's showing him just incredible grace. And he confirms that David's sins are forgiven. He says, the Lord also has put away your sin. His sin was put away. And Nathan also says that David will not die for this sin. When he could have. He could have been killed for this by the law. But there are consequences. Uh, The first, his child with Bathsheba will die. The second, there will be a curse against the house of David. And the curse is this. In David's lifetime, the sword shall never depart from his house. God will raise up evil against David from his own household. God will do these things openly, not in secret, for all of Israel to see. And we're going to see that curse fulfilled. Uh, Riley's going to speak on that next week. But uh, David's own family just falls apart. There's rape and murder and a coup. And it's all from this curse. There are consequences for sin. But something really important we have to take away from this is that God does not just write off the sinners. God doesn't write off screw-ups. Or he wouldn't have a church. David, Moses, Abraham, these are all great examples of men of God who sinned greatly against God at times and were forgiven. And God used them for amazing things and for examples for us. Uh, God showed them this incredible grace. Every single day I rebel against God in sin. Every single day. I don't go a single day without rebelling against God. And every day I choose selfishness and pleasure over God. But God is full of grace. Uh, He's quick to forgive. Um, All of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, our sins are forgiven. But I believe every single day, we need to go before God and confess our sins to keep our relationship whole with Him and accept the ongoing forgiveness, the, the, the forgiveness we already have, but confess to God to keep our relationship strong. But then we need to move on. God does not want us to sit in the mud and feel bad for how sinful we are. He wants us to stand up, brush the ash off, and continue the race, continue his work. And after David's child dies, we see him doing just this. He has accepted that he has sinned, he has accepted his punishment, and now he has work to do. He stands up, he brushes the ash off, he gets cleaned up, he gets dressed, and he gets back to work. In the next section, we see that David gets his act together. He gets back up, and he gets back to work. At the end of chapter 12, Joab, his general, calls for him. He tells David, I've got the city, the final city of the Ammonites, the royal city surrounded, and I can take it any time I want. So you better get your tail out here and take it, or I'm going to take it, and it's going to be my city. So this is Joab's not-so-subtle rebuke to David. You should be out here. You should be here fighting, not me. You should be leading the men. And either get out here and do it, or I'm going to take all the glory. Now, we should note that there is some really great humility here from Joab. 
because he could have just taken the city and taken all the glory, but he wants his leader and his king to have all the glory. And I think there is a, an obvious lesson for us here about giving glory to God and about giving glory to our king. So David gets off his rear end and his idleness, and he takes the city and he conquers the Ammonites. Now this is the same war from several chapters ago when the Ammonites started the war with them. This is the final battle, and David easily takes them through God's will. So David fell the lowest, and he was rebuked. He stepped it up, and then he finished the fight at hand with honor. But again, there's trouble coming. God promised a great curse against his family, and next week that's going to be played out. So in conclusion... Today we covered the first several years of David's life as king. Uh, there's a whole lot we can learn here, a lot of positive things. We saw that David is honorable, wise, pious, or devoted, courageous, honest, loyal, humble. But the most important thing to take away from today is this. When we sin, we must be willing to fess up and repent and do so immediately. Unlike David, he just kept letting it go and go and go, and it just kept making him sin more and more and more to try to cover it up. When we sin, we confess it, we live up to it, we repent. David had victory after victory. He followed God's will. He fought the good fight. And then he fell to the lowest point, one of the lowest points that a man of God can go. But he got back up. He brushed himself off. He continued the race. We have to accept God's forgiveness that we, we already have through Christ. Christ died on the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins. Those sins have been covered already. All we have to do is accept that. Accept his sacrifice and accept his salvation. But we still have to go before God and confess those sins to make our relationship right. But that isn't the end. Then we have to step it up. We have to make things right and we have to deal with the consequences of our actions. And then we need to continue the race. We need to drop that off. We need to not let the guilt hold us down from acting rightly. We need to let go of the guilt of our sins that hold us back. Let's pray. Our Lord, Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, um, who is the Messiah, who is your son, who is God. Um, Lord, I thank you for, uh, for forgiving my sins and for cleansing me and for seeing me as pure. I pray that I would not take advantage of that today and I pray that I would uh, live in context to my Savior's sacrifice for me. Uh, I pray that today we would leave here remembering all the things that we've learned. Um, and Lord, I pray for myself that uh, my life would be changed and my heart would be broken. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.